Christine, uh, Christina, lovely to meet you. Um, and thank you for taking time to talk to us. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. In our emails when we were setting this up, you mentioned that um, usually up at five, um, walking your pups at 5.30, coffee at six. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a bit nice, really. It's a nice way to start a day. Where exactly are you? I'm in Freeport, Grand Bahama, in the Bahamas. And I've been here for 27 years. Ah, lovely. It sounds, uh, well, I know it well, but it, it yeah. How's it, how are you doing there with COVID and everything? Uh, with COVID, we're actually doing great. Oh. Um, we have maybe one case per, per week. Uh, we went through some major uh, restrictions from the government. I mean, absolutely brutal ones. Um, I kind of like chuckle when I hear people complaining about, oh, I can't believe I have to wear the mask outside and compared to what our government did. But um, they then instituted rules for people to come in. And so we are open to people visiting uh, as long as they have a negative COVID test within five days of travel. And then once they're on the island on the fifth day, they do also a rapid test. And then they buy a $40 insurance or a $60 insurance, depending on length of their stay. And that includes the rapid test and includes also the emergency procedure should, for example, test of positive for COVID. So we've been having visitors, but because of these measures, we haven't had an increase in COVID. So life is actually, um, from a life point of view, is back to normal. Not for me, obviously. My, my business is a tourism and scuba diving, and we don't have that many coming in yet. But everything is open. The restaurants are open. The bars are open. The shops are open. People are going out. So I, I think actually it's actually doing really, really well here. Great. Oh, good to hear. Good to hear. Women Divers Hall of Fame, um, Explorers Club, among uh, other things, shark expert, conservationist, cave technical diving, I mean, the list goes on. It's um, uh, an amazing achievement that you've done. How did all this come about for you? I mean, where did it all start? Well, it started uh, from a childhood dream of being an underwater scuba ranger that would swim around the oceans and protect protect them from, from people. My dream was to imagine my job to be always on the water, eight to 10 hours per day, and tell people what to do, what not to do. And in, in tow, I would have sharks for friends. Obviously, this is a child's dream, but if we look at what I've done, it's very close to have been realized. And then evolved into figuring out how to do this, but it, it, it took a long gap. I actually follow the route of hotel management and languages. And then by a series of coincidences and, and choices, I landed here. I learned how to scuba dive. I decided to stay in a week time and I started all over again. What I did then through the years, I just followed really what I loved. I started off with sharks, then I discovered the caves, then I realized the two of them were very intrinsically connected. And then as anyone that loves someone, the next thing is, well, I want to protect whom I love. And so I started this desire to protect sharks and to protect caves. And then it's like, wait, but that includes protecting the environment. And so uh, my lifestyle changed, my choices adapted. And I, I tried to grow 
uh, not only vertically, so not only titles, but also laterally. I, I recommend this to young people all the time. I said, oh, I want to do what you do. It's like, well, what you see is a 27 years in the making, and I'm not done yet. And it's just like, don't learn, just don't think about just going up. Think about everything that you can learn around you. What are things that can actually fulfill other things that you're doing? And so that's what I did. Now how these things came along. I did not set off with, I'm going to become an Explorers Club member or I'm not, I'm going to be a Women Diver Hall of Fame. I only follow really a true calling uh, of my heart, a, a true passion. Yeah. With, with younger people in mind and um, education, um, I mean, a, a lot of people through the generations now, the, the younger ones, don't really know what's missing. I mean, they've never witnessed or seen it. Um, how do you overcome that in, in, your, in your teachings? And, and what kind of responses do you get from, from younger people? Well, the most asked question that I receive is how to do what you do. And so I actually wrote blogs so I can send them to the blogs instead of repeating because I, I send pretty long uh, answers, right? But one of the things I tell them is that each road is different, uh, but there are some commonalities. For example, if you want to work with sharks in the water, you will need to understand that you have to move somewhere where there's water and there's sharks. So that is the first step. Uh, if you want to work in the water, the second step is usually you want to become scuba diver. So I try to fill in the gaps in what to look for, but I want them to look for for themselves. And then I also try to give them ideas and say, hey, listen, helping sharks is not just doing what I do. Uh, you have all these other different opportunities. You have these uh, options. And then I give them some pros and cons. Obviously, some from experience or some from experience watching some of my colleagues or some of my friends. I have a vast uh, connection in this world and we're not all doing the same job. So I know scientists, I know PhDs, I know uh, nonprofit people that run their own nonprofits and I know all the, the good and the bad. And unfortunately, I think in our social media world, and then this I think is a disadvantage for the, the young people is we see the tip of the iceberg. I call it the tip of the iceberg. Everybody posts me included on, on Instagram, on Facebook. Oh, I'm out doing this research or I'm out doing this work. But we don't tend to post, yes, I wake up at five o'clock in the morning so that by six, I can actually be on my computer working uh, so that by eight, I can be out of the door to be able to do this. And then when I come home at 5 p.m., I'm on my computer again, finishing the data that I collected till 7, 8, 9 p.m., whenever is the time to go to bed. And, and so I try to tell them, give them this kind of like wider views. And hopefully that triggers interest. I want them to do their research for themselves, though, because at the end of the day, it's not my place to tell them, oh, you should do this or you should study that. I try to explain that it doesn't come in one day, one year, and sometimes it doesn't even come in 10 years. It's a, a, a method of application, of repetition. And I tell them also some of the, the things I think our society sometimes fails us as young people. Um, I, I went through them. The when are you going to get a real job? Uh, when are you going to stop playing with sharks? My favorite was when are you going to settle down? And I used to tell people when they asked me these questions, I was like, listen, I've been on this island for, at the time, 12 or 15 years. 
I bought my little apartment. I've been working in the same industry for 12, 15 years. How much more settled do you want me? But in their minds, the question was, when are you going to be married and have kids? So there are also obstacles that we don't really talk about sometimes. And as men and women, not only women, we're put into these boxes. And we have this list of expectations. I actually, a lot of women say, oh, it's all about women. I'm like, no, men have the same thing. They're expected to have a job that earns them a lot of money. They're expected to be able to create a family, to provide for the family, to have this nine to five job. And when they choose something else, uh, they become a little bit of a bum or a beach bum or a drifter. And so I tell them, I said, you, you will have also those psychological obstacles against you. It's like, you need to decide what is the price to pay. There's a price to pay for everyone. We'll pay a price. Is it worth your investment or not? Maybe you'll pay for a little while and then at a certain point in your life, you decide, well, this is not for me anymore. And then you change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything you've said just resonates with me totally. It's my whole career has been stepping out of those boxes that people try and put you in and try, and they delight in keeping you in them because they know it's safe then. And uh, oh, no, I hate those boxes. It, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, regarding the amount, the, 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 oh no, actually, first of all, um, I reposted a uh, Facebook thing of you chain mail with sharks taking a hook out of a shark's mouth. Yes, yes. I do that. Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> For one split second there, I wasn't sure it was you, and I thought, no, of course it is. Let me silly. I was intrigued to find that I had some responses that said, Marine animals shouldn't be touched in any circumstances. It was extraordinary. But anyway, what would you say to that? I would say these are the sharks that I work and live with. And these are the sharks that I will do my best to help. And if it's reducing the pain from a man-introduced object, uh, the touching does not affect them. And for sharks in general, it does not affect them because they don't have a mucus like the rest of the reef fish. They're covered in dermal denticles. So um, I find that these uh, generalized boxes in which people put these generalized rules uh, don't always actually work. So give you an example. Yesterday I was walking the beach and there was a stranded starfish. And by nature, you do not handle starfish. Uh, they're very delicate. They're very finicky. You don't pick it up and bring it to the surface to take a picture. But it was stranded on the beach. So I picked up the starfish and put it back in the water. And I think the action of gently picking it up by two, it was a giant cushion starfish. So it was very robust. But the act of picking it up and putting it back in the water is less damaging than leaving it in the sand, suffocating to death. So it's the same thing with the sharks. Um, they can be handled and they can be handled with care and they can be handled obviously with responsibility, hence the chainmail. So it's not something that I tell people, well, everybody should go out there and try to remove hooks from sharks by all means. But this is something that I do because these are my sharks, the one I know and the one I can relieve some pain from. Same as I would remove a, a thorn out of a paw of my dog, same as I would stop on the side of the road to pick up a stray dog 
even if it's not my dog or a dog that I don't know, I will still try to help. The, the other thing is my actions have inspired a lot of people. A lot of people text me and write to me and they say, well, I want to help sharks too. Can I help you remove hooks? And that is the perfect connection. I say, no, you don't need to help me with removing hooks to help sharks. Here's the things that you can actually do. And I go into reducing plastic pollution, changing your dietary habits to make sure if you're still eating fish, uh, to make sure that you eat that fish is on a green list rather than on the red list, uh, making sure, for example, that you check the legislations in the country you're in and see what are the rules about uh, import or export, depending on where you are, of sharks, if they're still allowed to be fished, to be finned, if there's still a commerce of shark products. And so people can be in a landlocked country and still work towards a shark conservation through live choices. So that's what I tell people. It's, it's a small example, but it has a, a wide reach. And in that case, then to me, it's okay. Especially because I have the proof that these sharks that I touch have no consequences. I've known some of them for 15 years. Fantastic. Fantastic. It, it's always hard. Uh, I mean, statistics are manipulated constantly. Uh, it's always hard to find out the real truth about the state of shark populations around the world. Would you have an insight into any of that, of, of what it actually is happening at the moment? Well, the, we start from the nature of sharks, which is they are uh, very uh, slow in becoming sexually reproductive. They actually have very small litters. And, uh, and just because of these two characteristics, um, they have a very uh, low reproductive rate in general. So if you look at certain species of sharks, they take 12 to 15 years to become sexually mature. So imagine now an animal that has to survive in the wild for 12 to 15 years before they can actually reef, leave behind a progeny. So then you add all the human impacts that goes from the direct attack on the sharks, which is the long lining, drift netting, overfishing in general, uh, together with uh, shark finning, which is the process of picking up sharks out of the water, cutting their fins off for shark fin soup and tossing the shark back in the water, either bleeding to death or suffocating to death or both. Furthermore, through uh, coastal development, we don't realize how many sharks actually need estuaries, rivers, bays, mangroves, alcoves in order to keep their pups, in order to keep their youngs to develop before they can actually venture into the deep ocean. And then all sorts of different pollutions from plastic pollution to waters, um, changes from temperature, for example, ocean acidifications. These are all things that are affecting the sharks. So there's direct attacks from humans and indirect attacks. It has been estimated that humans kill through all these direct attacks, so from shark finning through bycatch and overfishing, about 70 to 80 million sharks per year. So combined with how slow sharks are in reproducing and becoming active, that shows that there is a decline. There's a lot of species that are threatened, near threatened and on the ICUNC list. So their outlook is not good. No, no. 
and one that occasionally sees you know some good news projects or things happening with sharks in but it's 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 on a very small scale compared to the to the overall picture uh, and that kind of applies through to our entire marine world as well and it was interestingly talking about um fish eating which is the pet subject of mine um it seems to me that commercially even if you get you know a uh, species that are on a, a green list or sustainable list it's not really a true representation it's just really a species that's kept on the knife edge of commercial extinction uh, and i don't find that positive at all so i always try and encourage people not to to try and give up fish totally even if it's for a couple of years do you, do you still eat fish or what do you, what do you tell people fish i don't tell people anything uh because i have i live in a in a fishing country and i live in a country that still has people that rely strictly on fishing in order to survive and there are countries out there where people uh, have to rely on fishing in order to survive but as a uh, of first world countries or people that have the possibility of changing their dietary options, I have made my choices of not eating uh, fish. If possible, I think people should give it a break. Uh, the other one is fish need um, a respite seasonally and the, the respite uh, totally. But I don't tell people what to do. I just give information and I hope some of us will go towards the right direction in that. But like I said, I also lived in communities um, like Vietnam, for example, or I've been in India and I've been in other places where their relationship with fishing is so intrinsically connected. It's not my place nor my right to say, oh, you should stop eating fish or you should stop fishing. Hopefully with time, there will be a change in an alternative, but not for some of these communities, not yet. No, in that indeed. case, indeed, <laughs> doesn't it all come down again then to, as everything, education really, so people can make an informed choice? Yes, and there's a difference, I think, between a, 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 a trawler with a vast drift net and the Bahamian guy that goes out with a fishing line wrapped around his hand and picks up a couple of yellowtails for dinners. Um, there's very much a different in impact as well into, into what they're fishing and how they're fishing. So the Bahamian guys goes out, catches a couple of yellowtails, or they're out in the water in, in their swimming trunks, mask and fins, and kind of like shivering at this time of year uh, to pick up a couple of lobsters for their dietary needs. It has definitely different impacts than somebody that goes out on a compressors or with a boat full of lobster traps and captures a thousand lobsters. So I think there's also to take in consideration that I know that sometimes, for example, with sharks, one dead shark is a huge impact on the entire shark population because of all those characteristics. But some other animals, I think, we also need to consider who is doing what. But I think as more evolved countries, definitely we need to look into our choices and our demands. And I think this expands to everything. Um, we have so spoiled in a way. You know, I tell people, like people go to the supermarket in December expecting strawberries. It's like, well, it takes a certain effort to create strawberries in the Northern Hemisphere in the winter time. 
And so I try to tell people, you know, just try to go back to the seasonal, what the place has to offer. And obviously it becomes hard. I'm on an island, so quite a lot of stuff is imported because it's not available. But like I have banana trees and the little gardens, you know, and friends with papayas. And so uh, my fruit choices goes towards those trees rather than buying, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think, a pear, which is not from this country, nor is the seasonal here at all. So I can't remember when the last time I ate a pear, an apricot, or a peach. So I go towards more what the island offers, which is mangoes, avocados, bananas, papayas. And so there's, there's little things that we can do that are not really that drastic. And we can do one. And then when that one has come into our regimen, do the second one. And that comes into our regimen, do the third one. So I'm not telling people, you know, just drop everything you're doing one day. Is pick one and become inhabited with that one. And then slowly, just everything comes in. I can give a simple example. I used to put a little bit of sugar in my coffee and then slowly I took the sugar out of my coffee and now the sugar, the, the, the coffee is black, right? I did not want to have sugar in my diet. In, it was not a big drastic change, but it was a small change. But now my coffee is black and it tastes delicious and I have no sugar in my diet unless it comes from natural resources. Like, like I said, papayas or bananas. Yeah. The, the the whole food question for the entire world is vast, and and I could talk to you for for hours about it, but let's move on slightly um, <laughs> before we become too embroiled in it. Uh, cave diving, which is another one of your, uh, your things. Um, I mean, personally, I find cave diving just totally relaxing. You know, you have to uh, prepare your mind before you go in. And once you get in there, you're isolated um, with that just slight ever-present uh, feeling of danger. I mean, I just love it. I love it. But what is it about cave diving that draws you to it? For me, uh, it's a little bit what you describe. One of the things I love about cave diving is you have to be so engaged with what you're doing that everything else disappears. So I usually tell people time does not tick. And it's not obvious you have a bottom time, you have a, a no decompression or a decompression time, you have a gas consumption time, but that time is part of the awareness that you have in a cave. But the external time, the moving of the sunlight, the thinking that the day is at a certain point, the phone call or the appointment, those don't exist. They cannot exist. So cave diving is very much living in the now, in that moment, and be overall present and completely globally aware of everything that's happening to you, to your body, and to your environment in that specific moment. And then for me, cave diving is like, uh, imagine I always tell people, I imagine myself being in a, in a library, I love libraries, and being able to pick like a giant book, like one of those big ancient books and just opening it up like I imagine myself opening it and inside it is this geological history of our planet and it's all engraved in the rocks and as you cave dive you you can feel it you can read it sometimes I can hear it because some of these caves were dry before so I can hear the dripping of the water and imagine oh this formation formed this way but then something happened and swept the rocks underneath but why this happened and why are these sedimentations and you can read all of this and collect this data which then 
I personally then use for conservation and say, hey, look, this is what's happening underneath, but it's affected by this and it's affected by this and it's affected by that. And it brings it all together into understanding really what are we doing to our planet from within. Mm. It's uh, to me is the best medical checkup of our, of our planet. It's really from within. It's like a doctor being able to swim through your veins in a little machine. And figuring out as I guess swim by you know your your fat cells or your cholesterol cells and go oh wow there's a lot of cholesterol cells down your bloodstream, and imagine being able to do that as a doctor really from within and we do that I do that as a cave diver into the planet. Do you know nobody has ever described it like that before? <laughs> <laughs> That's just perfect. Yeah, I can't wait to get back into a cave now. My goodness, I was looking at your uh, website earlier just at some of some of your photos in the galleries. And um, two that stood out for me, I thought were wonderful images. Uh, it's you freediving, you're asleep on the bow of a boat, a ship, a wreck. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, you've, you're lying on the seabed with your, your chin in your, in your hands looking at starfish. <laughs> Stunning images. I mean, you obviously enjoy doing them. They're great fun to do. They are great fun. Yeah. A lot of them, yes, yeah, so, so there are different photographers that I work with. And obviously, each one has a different personality. And some of them is uh, more of a collaboration. But in some of them, it was like improvisation. So I will just go down there and I will have these ideas. And I will say, oh, I, I want this picture. I want to try to create this picture. And so uh, they're fun because they are kind of like challenging and figuring out how to do it. You know, like the setup, the safety, the backup of doing that. Quite a lot of them, I am. Uh, it's just me and the photographer, so I'm self-sustained. Either with like bringing down everything and just setting it all up, and then make it look so natural. And a lot of them, they're fun because they allow my creative spirit to actually come out. And so I actually truly enjoy that part of my underwater work. Is it's. Kind of like, let's say, my pastime in a way. You, you can tell by looking at them. That they're, they're just, yeah. I mean, people should look at them all. They're stunning, stunning photos. Thank you. What's on the horizon for you? What's, what's next? Or are you continuing in the same vein? Or, or what's your plans now? So we are involved in two major projects and those I want to continue. One is we are doing uh, the mapping of the, the cave systems on this island and we're actually talking to someone on expanding this work into the different islands of the Bahamas. Uh, the work that we do is uh, mapping but also doing what we call um, interactive maps. So what I do is with my camera, I swim down the tunnels of the cave and video every single tunnel. So we're talking about sometimes 40,000 feet, 50,000 feet of a cave. And then with the software, we overlap it into the map. And so anyone at home can actually click on the map and the video opens up. And as they swim down the video, also the dot travels along the map. Also, the map then is overlapped with Google Earth, so not only you can see what's below you, but where you are specifically. So we're working on that. I'm learning right now photogrammetry of caves, uh, photogrammetry meaning the assembling of thousands and thousands of pictures to do a 3D image of some of the artifacts that were found in the caves. 
So that is a project that we continue to go. And actually after this one, this morning, we're going to back to a project uh, from 2012 where I connected a land hole with an ocean blue hole. And now the wind rebreathers and have more advanced technology of almost, you know, 10 years later, I said, I'm going to tackle this project and push the boundaries of our exploration and our mapping. This is to create a database so that when somebody says, well, I want to develop something here, right? Somebody knows maybe the entrance is here, but they don't realize the cave extends six miles down the line. And so somebody could come in and say, I want to develop this beach resort. And we could say, wait, wait, because your beach resort actually is connected to the cave and creates these issues. The other one is we are photogrammetry in a different method, the sharks. So we're measuring sharks that through laser beams and collecting data and have this database of all the sharks present in different areas on this island. And then also measuring uh, the difference between the same species in different areas, the sizes, why. And this summer we hope to satellite tag a couple of them to figure it out where they go to reproduce and to mate because the sharks are protected in the Bahamas. We obtained that in 2011. But protecting sharks, we need to protect their environment. So I also want to see where are they going to leave their babies? Do we need to protect that area? So those are ongoing. On the horizon, I don't know. The Hurricane Dorian and COVID changed quite a lot into my life and into my style. I had to improvise. So I've been sitting on a couple of books for quite a long time. And I seem not to find the next step, which is either the publishing company or the agent. And so that is, I guess, the homework is to sit at home and find the next step. And then I will continue into my Zoom presentations and classrooms. So I'm going to expand that outreach because COVID really uh, opened up an opportunity. People now are learning through uh, remote connections and so i'm setting up some courses through remote connections christina it's been <laughs> wonderful talking to you um good luck with all your projects um i hope all goes well um for now they i'll say goodbye and hopefully um we can talk again sometime thank you jeff bye for now bye bye